Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Franz Tapon. In this episode, it's a fascinating discussion with Derek Laudermilk. He is the guy who runs the podcast and the website, The Art of Adventure. And the funny thing is that we go completely off topic. We're going to talk about his book, Superconductors, which I read, which I enjoyed. But instead, we talked about aliens and crop circles and supernatural stuff and metaphysics. Completely went off topic. And if you want to hear talking about adventure stuff, go listen to my podcast where I appear on his show, The Art of the Adventure. But this show is about a skeptic meeting a believer about the supernatural. Tell me what you think. What side do you fall on? And if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, let me know. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash ftapon, as well as signing up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. So you wrote a book called Superconductors, and it's not about physics. So tell us a little bit about it. I know, the funny thing is, uh, my I was it was going to be called Conductors, and my my publisher said, "Well, let's make it super, and that'll probably sell more books." And I was like, "Great!" Uh, <laughs> I know nothing about superconductors in the in the physics term. I had to look it up. You know, I was like, if I have a book called Superconductors, someone's going to ask me like, "What is a superconductor?" Actually, I probably couldn't tell you right now. But so I looked it up, and I was like, "Ah, it's unrelated." But superconductors. So the idea is how can you get big things done? It's, you know, leveraging uh, human skills and your ability to sort of coordinate groups of technology and people. So, so it's, it's sort of the next level of being good at one specific uh, niche or subject area. And, and I think that's where careers and business and, and everything is moving. So I wanted to write the book to help people with that. Excellent. And, your specialty, one of the things that you talked about is with Mountain Gladwell, for example, he has this 10,000 hours, you become an expert at something. And you're like, oh, yeah, fuck you, Mountain Gladwell. I could do it in 100. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think for, for most people, 100 hours of dedicated practice. And so this is uh, if you really apply yourself and don't see what a lot of people do when they try to learn something is they get... Uh, sort of good at one skill and then they practice that over and over because it feels good to practice something you're already good at but you don't you don't progress any further with that so maybe people will practice something like um and this actually happens to me with instruments i'll learn one song and then kind of just play that song forever and ever but if you really want to become uh valuable in a marketplace sort of in a career or if you want to get towards where you're you know you're much more in a rarefied air you know you're you're in the top 95 percent in the world it takes this progression and you can do that in 100 hours if you have well-crafted practice which means you're continually assessing where you are and challenging yourself to to move you know one percent better each time you sit down to train something and and so you can have a ton of progression in 100 hours and get really good at a skill whether it's um, chess or public speaking or uh, emotional intelligence, any of these things. Like if you are, uh, if you are really okay with being uncomfortable and being sort of off balance and a beginner, and that feels really icky for a lot of people, which is why people don't progress super fast in learning. But learning quickly and getting to world class quickly is like the the meta skill that unlocks so many other things. Right now, let's use an, a practical example. Aliens, you know, <laughs> UFOs. You told me before we went on that you spent about 500 hours. So you're about 500 times better than Malcolm Gladwell about this. <laughs> he doesn't know jack shit about aliens and you know a little bit more. So well, tell us about okay, how, you, so, how do you, how did you apply your process about the 1%, 1%, 1%? Did you apply it for this or not necessarily? N no, I wasn't really applying it. This is more like... Um, the difference between reading a novel and reading a nonfiction book where you're, whether you're um, in one, you're just sort of expanding your enjoyment and experience. And in another, you're like trying to get a specific piece of information that you can apply, you know, so you read a book about selling so you can be a better salesperson or something. So this isn't necessarily applied yet, but there's, um, there's this sort of immersion approach that 
I advise people if they want to get to the sort of the cutting edge or the place where they can be creative, you need to sort of really fully understand the field. And this is what I got from being a scientist um, was that I had to read, you know, let's say 300 papers and spend a couple of years like talking to scientists in, in my field of virology before I understood exactly where the limits of our research was and sort of like where the, the opportunity for, for me to create new work. And so, so understanding the cutting edge is best done, I think, through immersion. And, and then, so there's this like, you read a lot of books, you listen to a lot of interviews, you watch a lot of videos, and then you sort of understand where, where things are. And then you can start to be creative and, and brainstorm new ideas. Okay, I can combine an interest that I have and, and knowing that nobody's really looked in this particular direction, then you can go that way. And that's when you start to get creative and sort of control your own destiny which is also economically valuable. Yeah, that's certainly true. Now, you you got me excited when you told me about your virology, uh, which is related to aliens as well. But uh, before we get into aliens, since we are in the middle of the corona apocalypse, (laughs) what is your take about this whole virus that's going through this whole thing? I, you know, honestly, I haven't really gotten too engaged in it. And... uh, you know, there are so many things going on around me. You know, there's there's also the city that I live in has, you know, a lot of gun violence. Um, and there's people starving. There's, you know, disasters everywhere. The the pandemic isn't the only thing that's happening. And so what's really important is what you let pertain to you and you can go down any rabbit hole. You can go down a pandemic rabbit hole or politics or environmentalism or whatever, if you let it matter to you. But if you if you don't, if it doesn't pertain to you, then it doesn't have to affect you. It doesn't have to affect your thoughts and you don't have to take on any of the toxicity of the new cycle or the despair that other people are experiencing. And so that's kind of where I've been operating from is, yes, I see that it's affecting my country and the, and the world. I think there's a lot of great things that that will happen from it. And also, I'm not really letting it uh, be part of my thoughts too much. Got it. Uh, interesting, especially for a virologist, you would think that you would be obsessed <laughs> about this thing. All of a sudden, like, this is my time to shine. Yes, I've been waiting for all my life for this pandemic to hit us. And now is our chance. Um, and so you would be obsessed. But it's interesting. You're kind of almost detached to a certain extent. Yeah. And so my viruses were not human viruses. So I was looking, I was interested in the beginnings of life on planet or the beginnings of life in general. And so we were looking at, you know, how did the earliest viruses develop? Um, How did, how did we make this sort of switch from non-living to living? And so that's, that's what I was interested in. I was looking in the hot springs in Yellowstone, boiling acid, you know, the most extreme conditions. Um, And I ended up discovering a virus that infects a single celled microbe that, that lives in these hot springs. Wow. That's amazing. Cause already virus is super tiny and, and then you, getting into a microbe and infecting it, that was, that could be, because a virus is not, it's debatable whether it's a living thing or not, right? Yeah, it's an interesting debate. And what I tell people is that it's um, sometimes living. Right. <laughs> when it's uh, when it's inside of a cell replicating and growing, then let's call that the living phase. And when it's just a particle, you know, it's just basically like a, imagine a soccer ball or an M&M, right? The outside shell and then the, DNA or RNA is on the inside, and that's really all it is. And it, so, so in that sense, it's a, just a particle. Um, but it's got so much information inside of it that it can, you know, obviously cause a pandemic, which is which is super fascinating. It's so so simple, and it's it's you know it's one. It's like because it's not always living. It's such a great uh, step towards looking at what what were the beginnings of life. So what are the modern theories about how life got started? Because I think one of the challenges, and I think Richard Dawkins talks about this a little bit, is, is like, how do, how do we all of a sudden have DNA? And I think if, a, if people are very religious and, and believing that, you know, God just started things by fiat, that this would be a wonderful argument, which they almost never use. Creationists almost never use this argument, but they should. They should say, well, how did DNA just come to be? Like, boom. We don't have any precursors. I mean, unless it was RNA, but RNA is also a pretty complex thing as well. And RNA just doesn't, or DNA just doesn't spontaneously erupt out of nowhere. So either it's panspermia, that's one idea, but mm-hmm. I guess 
uh, how, but Richard Dawkins kind of, I think what he made this sense and correct me if I'm wrong, was that his idea was that we had a self-replicating, very basic self-replicating organism of some sort early on. And they became more and more and more and more complex. But once DNA, once we got to there, then DNA kind of got rid of or replaced. And so all those, there's no vestiges, no leftovers of those original self-replicating organisms. They're all gone. They're extinct because they've been replaced by DNA. So all we see now is the final evolutionary product. We don't see those original things. So what is your take? Well, so... There still is, and, and you can see self-replicating RNA molecules. So an RNA molecule is um, basically single-stranded instead of um, like DNA, and it can fold in such a way that it's like a protein. So it has some properties of a protein or an enzyme, but it also encodes genetic information. And it so that's sort of like a precursor to a virus, is, is a self-replicating RNA molecule. And so the precursor to that is sort of, uh, free free nucleotides and amino acids interacting, which you can sort of get if you apply electricity to sort of you know primordial ocean, which they've they've done this experiment, and you know that that experiment didn't create genetic material, but it created the sort of the building block. So yeah, there's a lot of steps that you're like, there's still a you know this would have to happen if this were to be true, and you know the panspermia idea is is really interesting um, because. Take for example, um, if you if you have let's say life on Earth and you want to have life on Mars or life on Mars and life on Earth, if a if a asteroid hits the Earth and shoots off projected matter, then it you could have a um, you know another asteroid go from Earth to Mars and sort of colonize Mars. Um, so that's you know there's enough exchange that 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 could be possible and. You know, I think there's there's just so much that we don't know, um, and, and so coming back to aliens and and understanding different dimensionalities and and life that perhaps exists with different frequencies or different vibrations that we can't see, sort of in this three dimensional DNA is supposedly interesting because it's it's a type of a molecule that shows up across dimensions. So I think there's there's potential um, for for life in a bunch of different manners than we can even try to understand at this point okay so you're saying that our definition of life is way too narrow so um one thing i've heard is that you know if if everything in the universe and this is shown in physics is you know frequency and vibration and fields then you can have entities that exist outside of a 3d reality in either like a sound field or a light field or a plasma field and they could be making a living. They could be, you know, living entities that operate totally differently than than we do, as as biological, you know, carbon based life forms. Give me an example, kind of like. Uh, so angels, you know, a lot of people see uh, or you know are familiar with the concept of angels, and and really, the my understanding based on you know again these five hundred hours of of different interviews that I've. I've started watching is that they're probably beings that exist normally in a plane based on light, but they can take a physical 3D form in order to interact with us on this earth dimension. And so when you see sort of angels coming down, they have, you know, as they, as they uh, move from sort of one vibrational frequency and use um <clears throat> basically their their consciousness to shift into a frequency that allows us to interact with them. That's when they sort of have this great glowing uh, appearance to us. So are you mentioning this, is it as a scientist who's trying to explain the phenomena of angels, or are you approaching it from a religious perspective? Because let's say whatever religion you're from, that you're kind of trying to explain it that way. Um, how, what is your, 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 um, yeah, I guess I guess I do like to have scientific explanations for things. Uh, the the really hard part is is a lot of measurable things. You know, you can't like we haven't caught up with a lot of things uh, in terms of being able to measure it. So at some point, right, you can observe phenomenon, right? Like, um, and the so let me let me say like the whole reason I got into this 
is because I started having dreams about crop circles. And crop circles are, they're beautiful, they're fascinating. And as I started diving into like, oh, there's, there's actually like tens of thousands of crop circles and they have very specific geometric codes. And, and there's all these like really interesting things about crop circles that basically proved to me that they're not made by, you know, a guy like doing a hoax, that they're, that they're created by some other phenomenon. <laughs> and so as I started to, you know, like go down this rabbit hole of, of UFOs and then learning about interdimensional beings and all of these things, um, I started looking for, you know, like, can I apply any of the science that I know and understand to, to these phenomena? And sometimes you, you can, sometimes there's, you know, basic physics experiments that show like the double slit experiment is probably the most, um, credible one that shows our thoughts bend material reality. So we can create the physical world with our consciousness and which is, you know, that's super cool, right? Proven with science now. Um, there's, there's just, it's like such a, such a infinitely new place to explore. Like, I don't even know how to design experiments or how to think about a lot of these things. Like, how can you prove angels? Like, let's say an angel comes to you in your, in your room, right? Or, or some other entity, like, um, like a great alien comes to you, like other than, you know, there's, there's so many different levels, right? Like people, people have their stories. Like there's thousands of people who have stories of alien abductions and things, but you know, how much of that can you, can you sort of study scientifically and how much do you need just to take as anecdotal evidence? Um, right. It's a, it's a, it's a great area for sure. It is tough. I think a very difficult field primarily because there are so many hoaxes, legitimate hoaxes. I mean, there have been people being filmed at night with night vision cameras cutting crop circles. And so we know mm -hmm. for a fact that some of the crop circles are certainly man-made. But does that mean that they're all man-made? Not necessarily. Um, and uh, similarly, we also know that there's alien abduction stories and all sorts of other you know, UFO sightings that are hoaxes. We know that for a fact. Uh, same thing with the Loch Ness Monster was that uh, picture that's so famous for the Loch Ness Monsters. We know it was a hoax. The, the guy who took it admitted to it. So as a result, that kind of pours a lot of cold water on those people who want to study it and see if all of them are hoaxes or can be explained away, or is there actually something real there behind it all? And, and that's a tough job. Yeah. And, and it doesn't help that there's been this since uh, essentially the sixties, like a huge campaign to discredit anybody who tries to investigate. So scientific or journalistic or just somebody who, experience something and they want to talk about it like there's a bit you know media and or intelligence sort of says like this person's crazy and it shuts them down and they get kicked out of their communities so so this is unfortunate like when people are trying to do fringe scientific research that ultimately leads to an expansion of knowledge uh, a lot of times people say they're crazy for a while and this you know since since galileo since copernicus uh, this has been happening. So it's not, it's not a new phenomenon, but it takes a brave person to uh, say like, here's what I've discovered, even though it's totally crazy. And then eventually, you know, that becomes an accepted, accepted truth. Right. And that's the challenge I think you're facing as just, you know, somebody who investigates this because you wonder like, am I the Copernicus of my age? In other words, am I seeing something that nobody else sees and is not obvious right now, but it will become eventually obvious in a few centuries or whatever once we kind of really hone this in? Or am I just another uh, person who's believing antiquated thoughts and I am just still haven't accepted that it's disproven? For example, there's a lot of beliefs that people had in uh you know, Aristotle's time. Aristotle believed a bunch of shit that's just not true. Um, mm -hmm. How he, he believed that the elements were earth, wind, and fire, and all this kind of stuff. And 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 the, uh, they they had a ton of beliefs that were eventually disproven. Um, and so you wonder, like, what side of the fence are you going to end up on? <laughs> sure. And then there's this, take something that was, like, popular and then unpopular and now has come back, which is uh, the concept of an ether. 
um, right. that pervades the universe. And so perhaps this ether is something uh, like a unifying force that combines uh, gravity and electromagnetism. And, and perhaps they're actually two different aspects of the same ether. Um, and so as you, so, you know, you never know, like if a concept well, is the classic one, recycle. Yeah. the classic one is Einstein when he, he had his cosmological constant, which he called his greatest blunder of his entire life. And then now we're kind of wondering, well, maybe there is a cosmological constant actually in the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but it's also just really fascinating. Like, um, when you can start to draw parallels between, let's say, you know, hundreds of native cultures and, you know, modern physics, if they're, if they're saying like similar things, like, okay, here's how a wormhole is possible. And then you have a story from the Hopi Indians, like for the last thousand years, you go to this place and there's a wormhole that appears on certain times of the year and you can step through it and you can time travel through this portal. And you're like, okay, so what does my modern understanding of physics line up with all these like ancient stories? And, and I, I like to, you know, I haven't sort of fully published or talked about it. This is actually probably the most I've sort of been able to, to talk publicly about this. I, you know, introduce it slowly, but I think, yeah, I think there's just like a great chance to unify so many different uh, things here in, in a sort of a model of reality. So what's your current thinking about UFOs and um, aliens life? Yeah. And, and so this is largely based on what I would say is, you know, a hundred or so interviews with people who have interacted with extraterrestrials or extra dimensionals. Uh, at this point, I would say there's, you know, for me, there's a hundred percent certainty that they're, they're here right now. Um, and there may be some in the room with us right now, but on a different frequency and we wouldn't be able to interact with them. They may be on a different, uh, timeline. They also may just be sort of like slightly out of phase with our material world and we wouldn't be able to interact. So there's just, you know, potential for so, so much, but, um, <clears throat> What I've come to understand is that the the Germans were the first to start interacting with you know physical extraterrestrials that came here to help humanity in the 30s, and that since then most of the nations of the world have had programs of interaction with extraterrestrials. Okay, so why wouldn't it have happened earlier? I mean, some people say the extraterrestrials helped the Egyptians build the pyramids, for example. Sure. Yes. And I would say, yeah, you can trace back, um, like a lot of the ancient stories, like the Hopis and the, you know, all the, all the ancient cultures in there. Um, sort of the, if you look at, let's say Graham Hancock's work where he says after the great flood, these extraterrestrials came and sort of retaught everyone agriculture and, uh, civil engineering and things like that. Uh, so yeah, perhaps there was, you know, for many millennia outside assistance, uh, I'm in the, in the modern era, I'm talking about sort of like aliens coming in ships to share technology. Right. I remember, I remember, uh, actually just reading cause I've, I've been studying Bitcoin and I remember somebody actually saying with a certain amount of seriousness, but I guess he might've been half joking that, that Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious, creator of bitcoin actually is a person from the future who tried to travel back into 2009 to drop mm. this technology onto us because you know it's, it's very it, nobody really knows his origin and then just disappeared and so there's like this is like infecting mm. our world with the virus of bitcoin and <laughs> hoping to transform things for the future i suppose and i thought i was like huh okay that that would be uh, fascinating if somehow we could prove it. Now, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm super skeptical about all these ideas. Uh, I'm, yeah. I, I land in the, hard on the skeptic camp. But I'm also, as any smart skeptic, I should, you should keep an open mind and, and, and be persuaded by the evidence. And one thing I will say that I do agree with you on is lately uh, you have Graham Greene, for example, a physicist who talks about multiverses and multiple universes that there could be thousands millions infinite number of multiple verses and uh, multiverses out there 
other universes that we just simply don't interact with or hardly interact with or bear. And the other thing that a lot of people are trying, physicists are struggling to deal with is um, explaining all the forces. So we have the this, this, this strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and then we have electromagnetic, and then we have uh, gravity, which is like so much weaker than all the other forces. And physicists posit that perhaps gravity is actually a force that exists in a parallel universe to ours that is somehow overlapping into our universe and having, having a, a kind of an influence on it. And this is not just some wacky, crazy physicist proposing this, but several prominent physicists saying this could. Gravity is one of the weird forces out there, and maybe mm -hmm. a parallel universe is going on where it's kind of infringing on it. So this idea that you kind of threw out there saying, you know, there could be uh, beings or entities or in our room with us. And the other thing, of course, is dark matter, which, you know, our visible matter is like 5% of the known universe. And uh, most of it is either dark energy or dark matter. Well, probably in a couple of centuries, if not sooner, we're going to figure out what that thing is, dark matter. And maybe this crazy, wacky idea, which, by the way, I disagree with you on. I don't think it's all these things, but maybe that is an explanation. And, and maybe and you will be vindicated one day. And I I... I argue, yeah, that's possible. So continue. <laughs> well, you know, and so I would say two years ago, right, um, one of my relatives was, like, telling me about aliens. And I was like, come on. Do you really think there are aliens? And at this point, I have read and seen so, so much that th there's no way I could not hold the beliefs that I have. You know, so, so I've basically come, I've shifted my beliefs entirely from thinking aliens are ridiculous to sort of understanding that they're collaborating with with people right now. Okay, so do you, now there's alien is a very very broad term. I mean, alien could be a bacteria that's sitting on Mars, but it could also be a sophisticated intelligent creature that walks around and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so there's so, a broad spectrum there. So kind of narrow that down and define what you mean by alien. Yeah, so um <laughs> Some some people listening to this may be familiar with also um, channeled beings. So there's Abraham Hicks is super popular on YouTube. Um, there's there's you know like it's all all over YouTube. You'll find people who can sort of channel from other dimensions. So like a consciousness will come and speak through a person. And there's you know tens of thousands of examples of people doing this on YouTube. And so a lot of times when, when you say like, who are you, you know, if, if a listener were to ask the sort of channeler or the channel being to say like, who are you? They would say like, oh, we're a ninth dimensional being of light, or we are a seventh dimensional being based in the Andromeda region or something like that. And so these are sort of quantity, uh, um, entities of consciousness that are no longer in physical form or that never were in physical form. And they can just sort of project their consciousness anywhere they want at any time. And sort of because they're at higher dimensional level. So that's why, you know, I, an alien would just, is, you know, just a foreigner essentially. Um, so someone who's not based here on planet earth. So there's also aliens like the, the little men who come here in spaceships and share ideas with us. And that is, those are sort of your three dimensional beings that we can sort of shake hands with. And, uh, you know. and you believe all these type, different types of aliens, both of the kind of more cosmic kind versus the more uh, flesh and blood kind, both of them exist. Uh, yeah. My understanding is that, you know, even let's say, <clears throat> um, yes, that, that if you were to define life as like something that has conscious awareness that let's say the universe or God is sort of just sort of universal consciousness and that each life form is a small slice of that. It's a fractalization of the larger whole. And then you can have that, you know, separated in all these different, I think there's 12 dimensions is what science has identified. And so I would expect you would find life, represented at each dimension. Okay. 
Um, no, to repeat, I mean, I, I, I do, I'm a big skeptic. So I, 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 I'm very like incredulous <laughs> to everything you're saying, Brad, mm-hmm. everything. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm almost, uh, I'll tell you just how extreme I am. And, but this is a fascinating conversation because yeah. I think this is what's good about podcasting and the internet is to get people who completely disagree to meet up and talk with each other. No, because I mean, well, I don't, we have, I, I don't know we if have, we disagree either. And I would say, don't take my word for anything, but do your own research. Okay, fair enough. But in my limited research, I don't do as much as you. But um, my conclusions are polar opposite of yours. So polar opposite in some respects. Um, hmm. That, but but again, this is the value of conversation. In other words, instead of having yelling matches on Twitter and, and insulting each other, um, which is not productive, it's better that two people who get together and, and people can kind of listen to both sides and kind of come to their own conclusion, if you will. So I, I think this is fantastic. I, I enjoy really uh, talking about this. But just to give you an idea of how polar opposite I am, I frankly don't think. I think life is fairly abundant in the universe, like mm-hmm. microbiological, you know, viruses and little tiny life. And maybe even occasionally you might find a, a vertebrate type life uh, somewhere in a rare thing. Um, there's a great book called Rare Earth, which talks about actually that multicellular life is highly unlikely anywhere in the universe and that we may be the only place that we has multicellular life, which I think is too extreme. But I'm kind of more down his path where I think that technologically intelligent life, because I don't like when people say intelligent life because I think my dog is intelligent. I think that uh, a mouse is intelligent. Um, And so I say technologically advanced life, somebody who's who's molded metal and done shit. Um, I think that we may be the only technologically advanced creatures in our galaxy and possibly the entire universe. That's how extreme I am. I'm like mm-hmm. way out there. So you're on this one extreme saying that we're visited by all sorts of creatures and there's there's alien life. And I'm like, no, I think the Milky Way has only one technologically advanced civilization and it's us. And and what causes you to say that? Okay, so good question. What causes me to say that is that I think that the, uh, the when you have technology, there's an exponential rise. And if it continues, we're going to be very powerful, either type one, type two, or type three civilization, if you're familiar with the, the uh, Kardashev. Okay. So um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but it's Kardashev, Kardashev scale of civilization. So a type a zero civilization doesn't use much energy. Type one civilization uses all the energy that hits their planet. Mm-hmm. So right now we're at like a type 0.7. So we're not using all the energy that hits all the solar energy, the wind and everything. We're not harvesting that. A type 2 civilization uses all the energy that is in the solar system, I believe, or that comes off from the sun. Yeah, basically all the solar. Um, so that means that we would harness and grab all the energy from the sun. And a type 3 civilization is when you harvest and use all the energy of the galaxy. So... Those are the three different levels of, of civilization based on energy utilization. It was a Russian scientist who came up with this thing about uh, probably 80 years ago or something like that. And so if once you get to our level, you can imagine that it's going to be a pretty quick ride, relatively speaking, in order to become a type one civilization mm-hmm. and then eventually expand into the stars and uh, start to harness all the energy of our sun. And... From space, Derek, you can see the impact that human beings have on our planet. You can see the fields of agriculture that we've transformed. So you can see these nice little blocks, the crop circles or whatever. You know, you can see mm-hmm. uh, how we've diverted rivers, made dams. You can see that from space, from orbit. In the same way, I think that you can. we should be able to see the diversion and the odd anomalies that are almost impossible to explain by known physics, we should be able to see that in the heavens. So -hmm. that when suddenly we would see, let's say, a star's orbit suddenly go retrograde and do something completely different. Or that we expect a star that's moving a certain way to like suddenly disappear for really no apparent reason. Um, 
Because why? Because a super advanced civilization ought to be having the energy and the power to harness and divert rivers, rivers of energy in the sky. So we should be able to observe all sorts of odd phenomena that we really have no idea uh, in the heavens. And as far as I know, maybe, of course, I'm ignorant, but it doesn't seem that we've ever observed something that says, wow, that's completely different. Unless, of course, you submit that a black hole is something, uh, is, is a machine that civilizations have created, for example, um, or just star creation is generally a machine that a civilization is, has boosted and is making it like a factory of stars, if you look at it that way. But I think we can explain those phenomena with general science and evolution of the solar system and the cosmos. Anyway, back to you. Um, I would say that, one, there's probably a ton of evidence already that we see manipulation in our solar system. If, if again, you were to sort of look for it, for example, um, we thought the rings of Saturn were unchanging, but it looks like they're being built and changing minute to minute if you look at sort of video footage. There's one example. Uh, another example that's totally, I, I'm not sure where I stand on this, but ancient cultures have oral traditions and histories of a time before the moon. And if you look at the physics of the moon, it's in this sort of perfectly manufactured tidal lock where you never see the dark side of the moon. And what I've come to understand, and this is from again, like hundreds of interviews of, of people that sort of study this, is that the moon is an arc, like a Noah's Ark that was deliberately placed into orbit some time ago around Earth. And that it's, all you know, you can find evidence like it weighs 65% less than it should. And it's, there's, there's no previous observation of such a large moon orbiting such a large, uh, such a small planet and all these different anomalies and including like, you know, 3d sort of architectural looking structures on images of the moon and all these things that, that would, you could say, compile evidence that the moon is a large piece of technology. Okay. Which is interesting. Cause that reminds me of 2001 space Odyssey where you have the monolith. Yeah, and so there's actually this great NASA images of basically that monolith on Mars. There's, you know, they've estimated that it's like four miles tall. You can search for images of monolith on Mars. I, I believe it's on Mars and not the moon. But anyway, it looks exactly like this, the 2001 monolith, hmm, um, which I was pretty blown away when I saw that. It's interesting. I read this. I saw this book that was written, I want to say, in the 1970s, maybe 1980s. And it's, a, it's about the face on Mars. Are you familiar with the face on Mars? Mm -mm. Okay, so... Oh, actually, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a picture. It was a very grainy, fuzzy picture taken by um, one of the early Mars uh, exploring vehicles that we sent out there. I don't remember if it was the Viking or what it was that took that right. picture. Um, and it looks like a human face. And this guy wrote an entire fat book, like a four or 500 page book, you know, kind of like analyzing it, speculating on it, talking about the civilization that built this face and da, 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 da. Okay. That was all happening in the seventies or eighties. And mm -hmm. then in this century, 21st century, we started imaging much sharper resolution with the Mars explorers that we sent out there. Yep. And it turns out that that fuzzy looking face actually doesn't look at all like a face once it's in high resolution. And or with the shadows all... are different or something like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I've thought to myself, I wonder how it would be to be that guy's wife. Because the wise wife was probably just, you know, he sees her husband spending untold hours analyzing this fuzzy image and coming up with all sorts of theories and that kind of stuff. And then suddenly dispelled more or less overnight when, and she probably yelled at him, why did you waste all that time? Why didn't you just wait for a better resolution of that photo? It's obviously a hoax and a fake and da, 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 da. And he's like feeling like an idiot. Like, damn it. I just, I should have waited on, you know, I should have waited for a better resolution. For or, maybe, so that, or maybe that was like the best part of his life when he felt like he was on the cutting edge and he was finding joy every day in piecing together ideas. And if you, if you really think about it, like, what is the ultimate point of us as humans being here? And it's 
it's to experience things. And if we're experiencing what we want and moving away from what we don't want, like that's some of the most important work we can be doing. So I would actually think that that was really great that he did it, even if he was eventually disproven, you know. Yeah, no, I agree with you that there are certain, you know, he, he certainly lived his life with passion during those years where he was examining it for sure. Um, I personally would feel like you're like, shit, I just spent all this time doing this stuff. And in the end, just got disproven in one fell swoop. But that's different. What about Akram's razor? Have you heard of Akram's, Akram's sure. razor? The simplest so, explanation. Yeah, the simplest explanation is often the correct one. And mm-hmm. so let's say, for example, you mentioned the moon and that it could have been artificially placed there and that kind of stuff. Like there's other explanations, I think. I'm not mm-hmm. a cosmologist, but I think there's certainly uh some credible theories placed by traditional astronomers to explain why the moon is the way it is. And to me, usually I think most of those explanations seem to be the simplest one. So I apply Occam's razor and say that versus coming up with an alternative explanation, which is the one, one of the ones you kind of suggested before of us as a possibility. How do you kind of use Occam's razor or when do you ignore it? Well, if, uh, you know, I would say if you want to compare two theories, right, then you would have to fully understand why each of them makes sense and then say which one really is the simplest. And because there's probably like a many factorial, you know, there's like here's 10 pieces of evidence why it's a natural rock and here's 10 pieces of evidence why it's a machine uh, that was placed there in geosynchronous orbit or, you know, a, a satellite. Uh, then you sort of have to take like th- the probability of each thing in aggregate and say which is more likely. And it, it's pretty impossible to do, right? Um, so I don't know. I, you know, at this point, um, I, I would say there's no great way to apply Occam's razor in, in this sense because it, in one sense, it's just someone putting it there is the simplest explanation. Sure. No, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve. I mean, it's just like the simplest explanation. Well, God, what's simpler than just saying that Adam and Eve were created by God and just boom, just placed there. It's a simple idea. Come on, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, this whole evolution that we come from microbes and we come, evolved from amphibians and we came out of the earth. God, what a complicated explanation. You know, Darwinian theory is just like sounds like complete bullshit and just like crazy idea. It's so much more simple. To just say that there was a God that just placed Adam and Eve and created all the creatures and just threw them on the earth and that's it. That's a simple explanation. It's true. Yeah. You know, so it's what I expect to happen is that so so part of my understanding is that we're passing like our solar system and earth is passing through a field in the Milky Way right now. Uh, which is part of a 62 and a half million year cycle. And every 62 and a half million years in the fossil record, you see these huge jumps in evolution from, let's say, mollusks to fish or from, um, you know, all of a sudden trees show up or all of a sudden, you know. So you see these like punctuated moments where evolution accelerates much, much quicker. And so... I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but but perhaps like the field we're passing through, which, by the way, is causing global warming on every planet simultaneously right now in our solar system, uh, you know, all the way out to Uranus and Venus, like every every planet is experiencing the same sort of global warming that we are. And so we're passing through this either a gravitational field or uh, electromagnetic field created by uh by the black hole in the center, you know, a sort of a pulse field that we sort of orbit through and um where am i going with this <laughs> that um we, we are, are going, going around by the way it is it is true that we are orbiting our solar system is orbiting around the galaxy and maybe many people may not even know that or realize that that mm. that uh yes we go around the sun but the sun goes around the entire milky way galaxy in in its spiral arm continue yeah and so 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 the theory is that as we pass through this field every 62 and a half million years you get these sort of like huge steps in evolution of the complexity of species um, on the planet. And so it may be slightly different than the sort of like gradual evolutionary process that sort of Darwin was was imagining. I see. Yeah, I mean, but I do think there is, I can't remember the biologist who was talking about punctuated equilibriums. In other words, yes. kind of like evolution jumping in steps. And that's not necessarily against Darwin. 
It just, you know, one interpretation of Darwin, and I don't think Darwin was explicit about whether it's a smooth kind of linear curve or whether it goes in a stair-step fashion. Um, either way, I think you could uh, it could uh, work with Darwinism. And it makes sense, I mean, that it could that there's these moments of just extreme innovation, especially when there's an extreme change in the environment. So I don't think that that's anti-Darwin by any means. Um, so what do you think are these? So you believe that there's potential rocket ships or spaceships, I guess, um, flying around, which I completely don't agree with. But explain to me, like, I guess maybe I guess the the purpose is unknowable. Like we just don't know why they're here. There could be a myriad of reasons, right? So one, uh, so there's a few things I want to comment there. After I started dreaming about crop circles and then started looking up, you know, just on YouTube, videos of UFOs. Um, but just a couple days after I started dreaming of crop circles, the Navy released their footage, and this was on New York Times, CNN, and everything. Like, hey, here's a UFO that was like interacting with our battle carrier group. And, you know, just a couple weeks ago, the Navy released the Pentagon said, we have a whole program studying UFOs. Here's a bunch more footage. Other governments have these UFO like defense programs. So then I'm like, okay, all the world's governments are tracking UFOs. So, okay, there's, there's, that's, you know, that's, that was sort of the next step for me. And, you know, hearing these pilots say like it accelerated from zero to 70,000 miles an hour in a second. Well, that's not jet technology. That's not a technology that we have, but I've heard many scientists talk about how you can create gravitational drives and how that would be possible. And that seems likely to be what they're using is not jet propulsion, but rather a, a field generated around a ship that allows it to operate in its own sort of gravity and, and therefore eliminates things like wind resistance and water resistance and sort of move at these extra fast speeds. Um, and that technology apparently is quite simple to to replicate. Well, I mean, when you say quite simple, I guess once you know how to do it. Right. And so you said, what is the point of these aliens oh. coming here? Uh, so in the 1930s, they started interacting, my understanding is, with many of the sort of the the pre the pre Nazi like German secret societies were the first to interact with uh, these aliens, and they said, "Here's how you do gravity drive technology," and that's when they learned. And so, so a big mission, it sounds like, is every all the all the aliens that I've heard of love Earth because it's so special, and they all are cheering for us to stop fighting, to start. Uh, working together more as a collective of humanity. And they all, let's say 95% of them, want to help us in that process. And that's why that they are here. And so when you hear these you know, messages from people who've experienced abduction or from people that work in these programs, like space programs, the sort of the message that I hear over and over again is that like we are, and and this pandemic is perhaps a symptom of that, like, we have the opportunity right now to come together as a collective species. And that that's why, you know, that's why I'm aware of that, that this is happening is because more and more people are starting to get contacted and have it be brought into their awareness that we have this opportunity before us and we must sort of rise to the occasion. Okay. Uh, why these, I mean, aliens are obviously much more powerful than we are technologically speaking, at least. Why don't they just throw down the hammer and just impose martial law and just say, okay, damn it, we want your place to succeed. We're going to make it happen, you know? Um, because there's a universal law that each entity has to have free will. And so you can encourage and you can help, but you can't, uh, you can't take something away. You can't take away someone's free will, and that would have consequences for, for whoever takes away someone else's free will. Which, you know, we've seen, right, like um, people do bad things on Earth, like ultimately it comes back to bite them, right? So so ultimately, like we have to get to a better place on our own. So you're not allowed to sort of theoretically, galactically, you're not allowed to just interfere in that sense. 
Derek, what do you think is our future in this century? In other words, do you think that uh, there's going to be some monumental discovery down the pipe? Uh, yeah, a few things, I think, within the next, well, even so this year, 2020, uh, I think more and more governments will just sort of declassify their UFO programs and we'll just learn more. I don't know when we'll see aliens walking in the streets because honestly, I think that would be super scary for most people. I think it would just blow our minds too much. Now, some people say that they're already walking on our streets, that they're among us, that Elon Musk is an alien himself. Well, let's say you use an alien that looks uh, different. Oh, I see what you mean. Like a, like a non-human alien. That would just... Okay. or Biological if, if, or maybe... That's the other thing is like, I don't think, you know, you see a lot of alien stories. I really don't think that a, an alien will be biological in nature. I would think it would be almost all synthetic. Yeah, perhaps there's, you know, the whole range, like, because we were talking about light entities, you know, like, so mm -hmm. perhaps there's biological and then, you know, sort of your cyborgs and your lights. But I haven't heard as much about the sort of, because what I hear is that the more you develop your consciousness, the less technology you need. All of a sudden you can take care of everything through applied consciousness and applied thought rather than having a machine need to do it for you. So I think right now we're, humans are, you know, really good at like tinkering and, and innovating and stuff like that on sort of like a machine level. But I think by the end of the century, our consciousness will have progressed that will move past needing a lot of machines. Whoa, you're saying machines are going to go down by the wayside? Um, we're going to become like we're going to become Luddites? Uh, I don't think that's, I think like if you can, if you can just sort of like, uh, travel through teleportation with your mind, then, you know, why drive a car, for example? Um, and yeah, I think, I think there's this, there's this expression that I've heard, like the more technology you have, the less technology you need. So like, imagine like every piece of technology just being still condensed into the phone, the iPhone more and more and more. And then the iPhone being condensed down into just like a little, like, um, like a necklace that everybody wears. And all the technology is just in one single little thing, and it just does everything for you. I kind of expect that's the direction we'll go. Hmm. Now, a lot of times, uh, I, I studied religion. As, that's my degree in religion. And, but yet I'm an atheist at this point. Um, after having studied so many religions, I studied so hard. I was like, oh, this. <laughs> I can't believe any one of them. Um, so I started off religious, but I became atheist in the end. Um, and sometimes people, I wonder, like, what would it take for me to become religious? And I'm, I, sometimes I'm like, well, if there's a big booming voice in the sky saying, I am Allah and the Quran is the right thing and, you know, believe me, then I'd be like, okay, that's probably, if I really can't find any other explanation, I could maybe come to the conclusion that that's, that, that is the legitimate uh, religion and that we should all become Muslims. Um, but it, barring that, it, it's going to be very hard to convince me otherwise that one religion is the right religion. It's hard because I've studied it so profoundly. But uh, but regarding aliens, you know, like I think that if I saw an alien, you know, like a spaceship landing and I could touch and feel and just like and not just me, but like massive community, like you have all sorts of scientists get to see and meet. And it's like it's well documented from a variety of angles, variety of cultures, not these like isolated incidents that depend on the, the testimony of just one or two people. Then that would change my mind. Mm -hmm. And then I would be like, OK, got it. There here is irrefutable evidence that there are indeed aliens here. So my question to you, Derek, is what would make you change your mind regarding aliens or crop circles or whatever that make you say, you know what? Actually, Francis is is his instincts are more right. In fact, this is bullshit. This is like there's no truth to this. I'm going to give up my thing and and say this. It's hard. It's, I think in some ways it's hard because you're trying to prove a negative. Like it's really hard. Like I can't disprove you. All mm -hmm. your all all your arguments. I can't really disprove you. It's kind of like trying to prove a negative. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like you trying to disprove to a Muslim like that Allah is not the the real God out there, and mm -hmm. the Muhammad was not a messenger. You can't. It's almost hard. It's almost impossible to prove that. Sure. Um, or that Jesus was whatever. Um, so, 
but but still, is there anything, I guess my question to you in my long-winded way <laughs> is to say, Derek, is there anything that would convince you? What evidence or what would have to happen for you to then suddenly change your ideas completely and say, you know what, abandoning all this and I'm going to say, you know what, the moon is the moon and uh, and the crop circle is the crop circle. It's just all this is natural, quote unquote, natural phenomena and, and not any supernatural explanation. What would have to happen? Like what, what would convince you? What would change your mind? Well, I'm not sure that, I don't, I don't know. Um, it would have to be, right, like a huge body of evidence over many years that is more compelling, right? So just like you said, uh, you would have to like see it and interact and, and hear stories and have scientists confirm and all these things. Well, like, you know, that's the point. That's the point where I am, right? So like I was where you are two years ago and after like studying all the evidence, I'm where I am now. Uh, so really in just two years, you've com- made a 180. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a 180. It's like, um, if you, if you never knew something, right. If you didn't know about something and then someone just, you know, was like, Hey, you want to go to a jazz club? And all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, jazz is amazing. And you studied jazz and you started playing it and you just started learning about it. It's just like diving into, you know, a, a world I didn't know about. And I would say also it doesn't matter whether I change my mind or not because ultimately like what's important is right our own experience and our own progression through life. And, um, you know, let's go back to like a message that comes from, again, all these aliens that are trying to help the planet. They say like the most important thing, right, is that you, that you start to be more helpful to other people. And, you know, that's, that's, a like, let's say that's a more important thing than, you know, what, what conclusions you reach or what evidence you get is if you arrive in this place where you're operating from a state of peace, where you're, where you're, you know, no longer doing things like numbing out with with alcohol or Netflix, but you're really living your full experience on earth as a human. You're experiencing the full range of emotions and, and, and learning the lessons that you're here to learn. Like ultimately that is much more important than whether you understand some piece of science or or some piece of religion or culture or anything like that. Mm. Okay. Well said. I mean, yeah, it is important to, to be fulfilled and to have purpose in your own life. And that I guess is, 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 is monumental. Um, let's, you know, the funny thing is that you're, you have a complete, you, <laughs> your life is completely different than what we've been talking about. <laughs> I, I appreciate you because uh, you've revealed a side of yourself that you admit you've basically almost never revealed or rarely revealed, uh, because talk to the listeners about just the normal side of Derek. Like what's your, your, okay. Your day yeah. Job? So we, we learned a little <laughs> bit that I, I used to be a scientist. Um, I, you know, so that's like a normal day for me is I'm training entrepreneurs. I'm a, I'm a business coach for entrepreneurs, um, digital nomads, thought leaders, you know, authors, speakers, trainers. And so you know, I, I traveled the world kind of, kind of like you did and looking at business in different countries. And so, so there's, you know, four basic, when, when I'm coaching, when I'm training, there's, you know, these four different aspects of myself that I bring into my work. One is adventure, which has always been a part of my life. One is metaphysics and all of these and, and the science that I'm studying now and how we can apply, you know, consciousness to business and, and sort of you know, everything I'm learning about physics and metaphysics and spirituality and aliens and all this stuff, I want to be able to apply it to people right now so that they can grow a business that impacts, you know, the future positively. So I'm also looking at the world of mental mastery and peak performance from uh, essentially, you know, high-performing executives and Olympic athletes and pro sports and stuff. So I'm bringing that in as well. And in the fourth aspect is um let's see so we got we've got business metaphysics uh, let's say spirituality and adventure yeah so those are the four the four pieces of of how i weave together the training that i do for entrepreneurs yeah that's uh very different well not all of it metaphysics obviously 
fits in nicely in that. And you, I read last night your book, Superconductors, which I thought was very good. Um, Thank you. I, I, I feel like, you know, when you're a chef, you, you spend, let's say, all day cooking this meal and then somebody wolfs it down in like 15 or 20 minutes. And you're like, <laughs> fuck, I just spent the entire goddamn day making this thing. And then all of a sudden you wolf it down in 15 minutes. And that's, you know, you probably spent years writing your book. And then all of a sudden I just read it in one night. And like, God. <laughs> you're like i spent a lot of time on that francis you just run through it so fast but it's actually a very readable book because you you break it out into sections so um superconductors is is a great uh business book it's a great uh self-help book i think um it's easy if you hit a section that is not apply to you uh you can skip it or slow it, you know and it's very modular in that fact uh that fashion so that's what i think made it super easy to read no section is that long so you don't mm -hmm. get bogged down um and there's a lot of practical how-to steps throughout the whole book so i commend you on having written that and i i hope uh, you do successful i'll put a link in it in the podcast notes um and it and for those who are curious it has absolutely nothing to do with all the metaphysics and the things that we've been talking <laughs> about today uh, it's a completely different side of derek that is uh i guess more quote unquote down to earth <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, like I wrote that book because I want so so you can uh, you can read books and you can understand concepts. But until you apply them and know what it's like to to be a person who is, you know, let's say learning. We talked about learning at the beginning of the episode, like until you understand what it's like to be a beginner over and over again and, and sort of acquire skills quickly, you can get it conceptually. But until you have that sort of lived experience of these things that I'm talking about in the book. So one thing that's important to me in the books or the training, the coaching that I'm doing is getting people to the place where they actually experience the knowledge that they're learning so that they can sort of come to deeply understand that and, and have it impact their lives. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And now one thing I also want to mention is that I think that religions, uh, when you compare it to the cutting edge physics, I think cutting edge physics is much more fascinating than religions because um, they, they're, they're exploring nowadays multidimensional things, dark matter, dark energy, wild, crazy ideas that uh, are, to me, much, much more wacky than the Bible, um, much crazier uh, concepts to try to digest. And these are real life physicists seriously going about their business of understanding string theory and uh, Planck's length and you know mm -hmm. just stuff that is the 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 realm of the super small or the realm of the super big and black holes and cosmologists to me is is such a fascinating and unknown field it's just amazing how ignorant we are regarding so many things about physics and so that's why I leave the door open to the wacky ideas, what I think are wacky ideas that you've kind of alluded to or mentioned today, but I respect you I mean I'm like okay. You might be right. You know, so far we're, we've proven ourselves uh, astoundingly ignorant about our about reality. What people believed in the 19th century is completely off base of what we believe today um, about so many issues. So what's to say that in the 23rd century we're going to look like ignoramuses that we have no <laughs> idea what this is? I mean, it's, it's true. It probably will happen. Yeah, when we exactly, it, it must happen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. Like in 23rd century, we're going to be laughing our asses off about how little we knew as homo sapiens and how ignorant and all the silly little ideas. <laughs> you guys thought broccoli was good for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, I appreciate all your time, uh, Derek. And uh, where can people find more about you? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Uh, com, And my podcast is... Uh, the Art of Adventure, and on that show, actually, so um, I, in in my sort of exploration of these topics, I've started seeking out practitioners, uh, you know, energy healers or hypnotists or uh, channelers, people who are more on the metaphysical side, and I've I've been getting like a personal session with them, so I can understand what it's like to to have a Reiki healing session or or a um, a crystal resonance therapy session. And then I interview the practitioner about 
the essentially the science behind their work. So, so I'm doing a whole series now on looking at these different sort of non-traditional modalities to do, do my due diligence essentially. So, um, if you're, if you liked what we were talking about, you might like some of these, uh, episodes over there. I am subscribed to your podcast and I'm trying to keep an open mind and I encourage everybody else to do the same. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the wander learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.